Super Bowl one, final Packer offensive lineman announced during pregame introductions was who? Jerry Kramer. No, it's not Jerry Kramer. It is not Fuzzy Thurston. It is not Gail Gillingham. It is not Fuzzy Zeller. It is not Jim Ringo. What there? It is not. No, it's, it's not Bill Curry. Who is the god offensive lineman who was announced lastly in that stupid, asinine, crappy, garbage, terrible production game by NFL Never. Who is the offensive lineman? God this is Jerry Kramer, and you're listening to The Bridge. Get after it, Johnny. Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be the son of NFL Hall of Famer Reggie White? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 99 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, January 31st, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available immediately after the broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on on Wednesday night. On iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Cleveland Indians will finally do away with the infamous Chief Wahoo logo come 2019. The question is, should they choose another mascot to take its place? It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Cleveland Indians are one of baseball's oldest franchises and unfortunately also hold the longest World Series championship drought in the sport, having not won a title since 1948. And for you younger minds, that equates to 69 seasons. 
The name Indians originated from a request by the club owner to baseball writers to have them choose a new name to replace the Cleveland Naps, following the departure of player Knapp Lajouet after the 1914 season. The name referenced the nickname Indians that was applied to the Cleveland Spiders Baseball Club during the time when a Native American played in Cleveland. Nicknames for the team followed, including the Tribe and the Wahoos, the latter of which was referenced to their eventual logo, Chief Wahoo. Chief Wahoo came to be in 1947, when Cleveland Indians owner Bill Veek hired a cartoonist to create a new logo for the team, tasked with creating a mascot that, quote, would convey a spirit of pure joy and unbridled enthusiasm. 17-year-old draftsman Walter Goldback created a smiling face with yellow skin and a prominent nose. Sports writers would eventually use Chief Wahoo as the mascot name, though Goldback would later say the nickname is technically inaccurate and that the caricature should be referred to as a brave since it only had one feather and Chiefs have full headdresses. In 1951, the mascot was redesigned with a smaller nose and red skin instead of yellow, and has been used ever since aside from some slight modifications. In 1994, when the Indians moved from the Cleveland Municipal Stadium to Jacobs Field, the team considered replacing the logo the year prior, but it was ultimately kept. Several years later, the Associated Press reported that the Chief Wahoo debate had not hurt the team's souvenir sales, which at the time were better than any other team in the league. The Chief Wahoo logo could be found on uniform sleeves, baseball caps, and of course the stands, until 2014, when the organization officially changed the primary logo away from Chief Wahoo to the letter C. The move was long overdue, as Native Americans have said the logo is racist and disrespectful for decades. And last week, Major League Baseball finally gave in, saying the caricature is, quote, no longer appropriate for on-field use or on any banners or signs in progressive field come 2019. However, consumers will still be able to buy items with the logo, just not on MLB.com's website. And, though the Indians will stop using the logo on their uniforms, they will not relinquish the trademark, and of course can still profit from the logo off merchandise sales. How nice. But if Cleveland fans still long for a mascot, there's already enough ridiculous examples in sports where deciding on one shouldn't be so hard. Perhaps a guitar to pay homage to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Maybe they can release a swarm of midges onto the field each game to pay homage to their playoff win over Jabba Chamberlain and the New York Yankees. And maybe they could even hire LeBron James. But whatever they decide, there's only one way to announce the winner. There has to be a big reveal. And thankfully, the movie Major League, which tells the tale of a Cleveland Indians team, showed us exactly how to do it.
I figure it's going to take 32 more victories to win this thing. Every time we win, we peel a section. I'm John Lund for Sports News, Red Like Real News. Let's take a quick break to go watch Major League. When we come back, we'll talk to the son of Hall of Famer Reggie White about growing up with an NFL superstar as a dad and how those experiences helped shape him into who he is today. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know, what is your best Super Bowl prop bet and why? A quick housekeeping note, as long-time listeners to the show might have noticed in the open, The Bridge will now be aired Monday through Friday on Sports Radio America at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, with new episodes airing every Wednesday, featuring the usual cavalcade of segments and an interview with a guest to headline the show. We're also in the process of working on a second show that will air on Monday nights and will be more sports talk specific, and I'll have more information about that in the coming weeks. Now to this week's guest in Jeremy White. He is a kindergarten teacher, published author, and also happens to be the son of the late Reggie White. I had the pleasure of meeting Jeremy at the Sirius XM radio event for the Morning Men on Mad Dog Sports Radio last summer, and it was great catching up with him for the first time. I later found out he wrote a book during college called In His Shadow, Growing Up with Reggie White, which details countless stories from his childhood through high school, and also includes the events before and after the unfortunate passing of his father, Reggie White. Not only is it amazing that he could put a book together with all that going on in his life and have it published back in 2006, but his recall of stories both in the book and in this interview is incredible. For those thinking that our chat was just centered around questions about Reggie White and his accomplishments, there's much more to our conversation than that, and by the time we're done, by the time we're finished, you'll hopefully get a better picture of who Reggie White was off the football field, not as just a superstar, but as dad, and who his son Jeremy White was and now is. We end up getting a little chatty, so those listening to the show live on Sports Radio America will be able to hear some additional content and the full interview over at LondonBridge.com or by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast on iTunes. Jeremy and I will chat about his inspiration for writing the book, Growing Up with Reggie White as a Dad, the trials and tribulations that might have come with that, figuratively and literally stepping out of his shadow, their strong religious beliefs, their relationship before Reggie White passed away, kicking his ass in Madden, some of the stupid that comes with the National Football League, Jeremy's pick for the Super Bowl of his father's former team or the team his father beat to win his Super Bowl, and much more. 
I'd also like to dedicate this show to Tony in Chicago, T-Bone1062, one of the best callers ever into Foul Nation and someone that made the Morning Men program even better when he was a part of it. It was a pleasure getting to meet him last year. I know he was someone that listened to my show and hope he enjoys this one all the same. You can follow Jeremy White on Twitter. He's at underscore Mr. White one. That's underscore Mr. White, the numeral one. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Jeremy White. He is a teacher, published author, and also happens to be the son of the late Reggie White. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to hear that, and I'm certainly happy you're free to help fill this void leading up to the Super Bowl instead of me breaking down the game like every other sports show is doing in the country. And to set the scene for listeners, I had the pleasure of meeting Jeremy last summer at Falcon 2, the celebration extravaganza hosted by the morning men of Mad Dog Sports Radio. And it was a pleasure to go from knowing someone as the son of Reggie White to the real Mr. White, as it goes on Twitter, to more of the whole Jeremy White, which became the case after I finished reading your book, which is In His Shadow, Growing Up with Reggie White. And that came out 12 years ago now, in 2006, the same year your father was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And before I turn back the clocks a little bit with everything that happened before that, you started writing that book even before Reggie White passed away. What was your inspiration for wanting to write about growing up with Reggie White? So I'm, I'm so happy you asked that question because when I tell people this, it almost seems I've never had anybody say, dude, you're lying, but it, it, it's so improbable. So a week and a half before he passed away, I, I came, I went up to my mom it was, I was a freshman year in college. And I said, mom, like, I love to write. I love typing for one thing, because I could, you asked me to write a paper by hand and I would go slow, but typing, I was, there's only two things I think I'm really great at, really great at is, Typing and shooting pool. <laughs> like, I love typing. It's like 90 words a minute. And I was like, Mom, you know, I really want to write a book because everybody always asks me, what's it like to be son of Reggie White? What's it like to grow up with a famous father? What's it like to be a celebrity? And I'm like, ah, I mean, uh, it's uh, normal. And they're like, it's not normal. Uh, okay. So I just was like, you know what? If enough people are asking, I might as well just put this on, you know, put this on paper and then just, when people ask, I can just give them a book. <laughs> Literally, like, what's it like? Here's what it's like. Go read this. I don't want to spend an hour telling you about it. So a week and a half before he died, I said, Mom, do you think this is a good idea? She goes, I think it's a great idea. I said, okay. So I started I started writing it. And then it, it was in its infancy. It probably wasn't even in the first chapter. But I just started putting my thoughts on paper. And after he died, I, I remember talking to my mom. And I said, Mom, I got to finish this book. And she said, yeah. And, 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 and that, and it just went from there and it ended up being, um, it, it really ended up being a therapy more than I realized that I needed. It was able to get me to reminisce, remember all the good times. Remember that just because somebody's gone doesn't mean that they're really gone because if you don't miss something, then you, you never appreciate it in the first place. And I, I, I just remember the, um, 
first chapter, I won't give it away, but the first chapter that I wrote was actually the, the first chapter in the book is actually the last chapter I wrote. And my editor said, we need to put this in the first chapter. And um, the, the last, the, the last that I wrote, I remember just writing it through tears. And I was like, you know, what am I doing? And, but it was, it was all, and I was, I was kind of sad because I was at Elon and I was like, man, I hope my roommate doesn't walk in right now. Cause this is going to look really awkward with me crying my, my eyes out and I'm typing what I'm writing. So, but yeah, that's, that's, that's really why I wrote the book because I, I just had the idea before he passed and after he passed it more solidified it. So you're writing this while also going to college, as you mentioned, on top of all the other events and remembrances and ceremonies for your father in those years as well. What was the most challenging part of the process? Or really, how did you remember all the stuff that you were able to put into the book as well? Excellent. Excellent question. So I always tell people uh, who ask, which isn't that many people, <laughs> I always tell people, but because we lived in five different states, there were always checkpoints in my life. And, and uh, I, I equate it to video games like Mario Kart. You know, you've got your checkpoints, right? Especially, I don't know if any of the listeners or you have played Mario Kart Wii U or uh, Mario Kart um, for the Switch. But I, I, I equate it to this. There's a, uh, there's a downhill snow run in like a Wario world where it's not one continuous loop. It's not like a loop that you keep going back, but it's checkpoints in each part. So you know, okay, when I hit this checkpoint, I'm going to be here. When I hit this other checkpoint, I'm going to be here. Like going on a downhill race, um, uh, hashtag not sponsored, hashtag Olympics, right? So hashtag like, Nintendo 64 Mario Kart was better. <clears throat> Yeah, you know what? Uh, oh, that's a whole nother. We need to. We need that's to, we need that's to have a whole nother podcast to talk about that really video is. games I, and I, all I, the stuff you know about that. Ooh, I, know. I love it. So it's checkpoints. Like, so I know that I was in Tennessee from a certain age to a certain age. I know I was in Wisconsin from a certain age to a certain age. So it's easier for me not to overlap my memories. So what I did was I just started from the beginning. What's the earliest I can remember? And obviously, I didn't remember my mother and father meeting. I asked my mother, I asked my mother, I said, where'd you guys meet? What was it like? And then I just started from my earliest memory. And then every memory that just kept hitting me, I said, okay, is this, is this correct? And I would double check with my mom. I was like, hey, remember that time dad wouldn't let me watch Smurfs? That was in New Jersey, right? And she said, yeah, because you were over such and such a house and you were four. And I was like, yeah, that's what I thought. And, I would, and I'd go back and I'd just write it down. And so I was able to just get it all out because, like I said, I, I, I like to write. And my biggest, one of my biggest downfalls is that I write like I talk. And that's, I remember a buddy of mine who actually uh, is, um, is a news reporter, sportscaster for a local, um, uh, a local news station in, in Greensboro, North Carolina. He said, hey, man, I loved your book, but it could have used some headers. And I said, yeah, man, if I had wrote it again, I would put, definitely put some headers because I know I was all over the place because I wrote like I talked. Like I just jumped from one thing to another. Like all of a sudden I'm talking about my dad and then I'm talking about the greatest video games ever. Like it was just all over the place. But people who knew me when they read it, they were like, you know, that was totally you. So it was, it was, um, it was easy to write because I, I just had to get my thoughts in order and then I just had to remember 
what I wrote. So I, I had put, hey, write about this, write about this experience, write about this experience. And then underneath all of those bolded, like basically headers, which I should have put in the book, were I just basically wrote out as much as I could remember. And then we split them up in the chapters and then we just made the book. So if that makes sense. It does. And one of the things I found interesting is an early theme is that you made it clear that Reggie White wasn't this NFL superstar to you as he was to many fans. And you weren't even really a a diehard football fan, per se, growing up. To you, he was just dad. Was there any struggle to separate the two while growing up for you? Or was it almost like it is for most kids where you're just waiting for mom and dad to get home from work, regardless of what that work for them might be. That's basically what it was. I mean, I grew up and I'm, I'm still am. I was always a mama's boy. So uh, actually some of the most awesome weeks of my life, you got to take this with the understanding. Well, when my dad was in training camp, because my mom was like, my dad's, dad's going to training camp. He's not going to be here for two weeks. I'm like, awesome i can get away with stuff i never thought i could get away with nobody's gonna reprimand me i don't have to get wolf i can sleep in my mom's bed like i'm younger right i'm like yeah he's a training camp he's not gonna be home for two weeks and you know and he'd get back and my mom be like tell your dad what you did i'm like you know i hit my sister or something (laughs) you know so it was it was waiting for him to get home um and i i still can't even believe he left earlier than I woke up most days. He was out the door at like 5.30 during the season. And I wake up pretty early to be a kindergarten teacher. And I'm like, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he woke up at 5.30. But it was, yeah, when that family dynamic, when he came home, it was, how was your day at school? What'd you do? What'd you learn? Did you get your name written on the board for doing something wrong? No, I didn't. Okay, did you do your homework? Yes, I did. All right, do you need help with your homework? Don't ask me for help if it's math, but I can help you with anything else. You know, and uh, Monday nights, um, uh, I can stay up later. Our bedtime was 7.30, okay? I tell my kids that now, and they look at me like I'm crazy. I said, I had to go to bed at 7.30 every night. Like, there was no qualms about it. I'd be in bed at 7.30. And there were Mondays where he goes, hey, you can stay up till 9. And I thought I was the coolest kid ever because I could stay up till 9. And we would stay up till nine watching WCW Nitro. Oh my God. It was the best. <laughs> and so like, I, I looked at it from that standpoint. The only time I ever got reminded that my dad was a football player is when we went out in public. And the worst of it was when we went to Disney World. And I never could understand for the life of me when I was younger, why my dad always got tired early in the day when we went to Disney World. He would always tap out around 12 p.m. or 1 p.m. And he goes, he would say, he'd say to my mom, hey, Sarah, I'm tired. I'm going back to the hotel. And I would always think, dang, you know, like, I want you to go on this ride with me. Like, we're doing the teacups next. Like, we're going to watch the show next. Like, why can't you stay around? And then the older I got, I realized that four hours was enough for him because, but he, and I'm so happy you got to take this the right way. I'm not happy that he's gone, but I'm happy that he didn't have to experience life in the age of Twitter and cell phones because during even just regular wind up roles of film, people would recognize him, come up to him, 
snap a picture without asking. Just it will come up to him. Oh, it's Reggie White, and they would just snap a picture. We're in the store. He wants to give us time to look around. Oh, Timon, there's Pumbaa, there's the Lion King, there's a Mickey stuffed animal. He didn't want to hang out and do the family thing because every passing moment that went by, it was, okay, who's going to come up to me and, 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 you know, disturb family time kind of. And so it wasn't, I, I never was reminded out, Outside of home, I never was reminded, even outside of school events, because most of our parents were really respectful and they were like, this is just his kid goes to this school. We're not going to treat him any different. It was the, the times I got reminded and was hard for me to put together is when we went out in public, especially in the place we, I mean, we went five, six, seven states over and people still knew who he was, you know, and and I get it. You're excited. You're seeing somebody, but he, uh, I'll never forget. We went to Vegas one time. It was for some fight. And, um, I was nine years old and, uh, the, there was a owner of a, a car dealership in green Bay, uh, who basically for lack of better terms, he made my dad look poor. Like this dude had so many car deal, the car dealers across the green Bay, Wisconsin area. Okay. Uh, and we were at the we were at the Mirage Hotel, and I was nine years old. The TV came out of the floor. We were like, "Wow!" A TV came out of the floor. He told right, it was crazy. He said the the guy told us. He said, "Hey," because uh, we had a we had a regular room in the Mirage. Um, and he said, "Hey, your entire family's here. Why don't you go stay in my suite, and me and my wife will stay in this room?" We were like, "What?" And he was like, yeah, yeah, just you go stay in our suite. And we'll, we'll stay in this room. And, uh, okay. We go up to the suite. The suite's like four rooms. It was crazy. But the point of the story is when we were in Vegas, we're, we're getting out of the car or we're getting out of the, off the plane and we're waiting for our bags. You know, Penn and Teller is up on the screen. You know, uh, whatever Vegas shows are going on. I don't think Celine Dion was up at that point. I'm nine, so this is 90-something. And this guy comes up and says, hey, uh, are you Reggie White? Yes, I am. Uh, can I get an autograph? Take a picture with you. And he goes, no, I'm waiting for my bags, and I'm just trying to get to my hotel. And the guy says, okay, okay. Comes back up to us five minutes later. Hey, can I get an autograph and a picture? And my dad says, you know, I, I just told you I can't, I can't do that. We get all the way out to the limousine, okay? And the guy comes back to my dad and says, hey, can I get an autograph and a picture? And my dad says, guys, this is the third time I've told you I, I can't do this. I'm trying to get to my hotel. And the guy busts out, I thought you were a Christian. And my dad looks at him and he goes, me being a Christian has nothing to do with me not giving you an autograph. And the guy went back at him and goes, but I thought Christian was supposed to be X, Y, and Z. And I don't remember the rest of it because my mom was like, get in the car. Stop listening to the conversation. Get in the car. And she was telling me this because I'm sitting there looking at him. And she's like, get in this car. And so I got in the limousine and we went to where we needed to go. But there was there was a huge argument. A fan had an argument with my dad and basically tried to guilt trip him for being a Christian and not giving him an autograph. So to answer your question, no, it never got too big for me until it was presented to me by someone else who was not related to us, if that makes sense. 
It's amazing just to think about that, because as you mentioned, there was no social media, there was no Twitter, there was no camera phones, and people still knew who your father was just from what he was able to do in the National Football League, and it didn't matter what state that was in, which is just crazy to think about, because as you mentioned, in today's day and age, it would be 10 times worse It's that even, if oh that's God. even possible, and it's no surprise to see that life for the family of a football player is hectic to say the least. And there's plenty examples right. of that in the book, especially when there's a switch of teams to go with it along the way oh, in boy. your dad's career. And you mentioned being home for two weeks would have been a while at some points throughout the season. What was yeah. the hardest part of trying to be a kid? I guess you could say while growing up under those circumstances. So, um, I got to give credit. I got to give a ton of credit to my mother because uh, it was all new to her. I mean, she didn't, she didn't marry this man thinking he was going to be a superstar. They got married. She was 20 years old. He was 22. Um, he had just got signed by the Eagles. I think a year after they got married, he was with the showboats beforehand. Uh, and she, she didn't have a playbook for this. Uh, to, to not use a <laughs> redundant a term, you know, but she really she didn't have a manual for this, and she did a great job at helping me and my sister have the most um, quote unquote normal experience you could have with this. One of the best things that I love about what she did is when we lived in two different states at two different times because we never stayed where um, he was playing. We only stayed there where he was playing while he was playing, and then after that, we moved back to our quote unquote real home which is where he thought he was going to retire uh, because my father's family is from Chattanooga, Tennessee. So we were right outside of uh, Chattanooga, a few hours away in Knoxville. Really, we were in a small town called Maryville. And he had got some, he had got 37 acres in the house there. And that's where we thought, that's where he thought we were going to settle down after he retired. He, he always said, I'm going to ride my Harleys after I retire and I'm going to do this and do that. So that's where we thought we were going to be. But, in between moving between the states what my mom did is she knew i had really good friends in green bay and really good friends in new jersey right outside of philly and really good friends in tennessee and what she did first and foremost is she found a curriculum uh at the whatever private school we were at um that lined up with the other curriculum that was at the other private school we were at and at the time, I don't know how uh, how usual that was, but she went out of her way to say, well, if my son and daughter are doing this curriculum for four months and we move, I want them to be on the exact same curriculum when we get back. So it was interesting because we would be on, I don't know, let's just hypothesize, say, lesson 95 in the curriculum book. When we moved to Tennessee during the off season, they'd be on 95, 94, 96 we'd be right there. So the transition was seamless. But the other part about it was she made sure that we didn't have celebrations uh, with different friends at different times. So one of the best things she ever did for me was that she said, you know, Jeremy, we're going to celebrate your half birthday. And I was like, what's a half birthday? She goes, well, it's, you know, it's halfway point towards your next birthday. And I want you to have a birthday with your friends from Green Bay, just like you have a birthday with your friends in Tennessee. So she created the half birthday for me so that I could have a birthday party with my friends from Green Bay and I could have a birthday party with my friends from Tennessee when we moved back and forth. Same thing in New Jersey. So um, 
I forget your original question, but that that's how it was kind of made normalized. Um, if that makes sense. It did. It answered it because it does get hectic when, as you mentioned, you're, you're living one place for six months, you're learning one place for six months. And then that all gets changed in a sense where you're uprooted to have to go to a different place just based on whatever the living arrangements would be. And you do touch on this as well in the book about meeting different people, going to new schools, sometimes being the odd man out and not wanting to draw attention to yourself with, hey, I'm Reggie White's son, more of I'm Jeremy White and hope that people don't come up to you and only want to talk to you because you're Reggie White's son. How are you able to navigate through that, especially when you're getting older in junior high and going to high school, where some people in your life might want to be friends just because of the celebrity status that they think you have, not necessarily because of who you are as a person? I think what I ended up doing, especially in high school, because the, the first two high schools I was at in North Carolina, one was owned by a family member. It was a very, very small private school. Small, small, small. When I say small, it's like no more than 70 kids, if that. And most of them were, were elementary age. And it's actually interesting because I teach there now. <laughs> I was teaching in the same building I went to high school in. Um, but I think because it was so small, that wasn't a big issue in ninth grade. Tenth grade was, and, and I touched on it in the book, and I tried to keep things very anonymous, um, but you could see my frustrations coming out because I got to, I got there, the school I went to in tenth grade, and it was the first school I went to where they, the the students and the staff actually acted like all the negative stereotypes of a private school. Uh, and before that time, most of the private schools that I went to were private because they were Christian or Baptist or, you know, some sort of denominational school, not because they were quote unquote private and elite, if that makes sense. So, but this school in particular was private Christian, but they acted elite. And it was tough for me to navigate because I didn't want to come across as somebody like as superior as them. I didn't want them to think that, but they ended up giving off that aura even before I talked to them. Um, so that, that was hard because I'm like, I'm doing everything I can to show you how I'm humble. I'm trying to be me and you're still ostracizing me because, and it later it came down to because my dad's, uh, spiritual journey and I started to follow him with some stuff and it just it was a, it was a hodgepodge of when it rains of course but in high school 11th and 12th grade it actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be I thought it was going to be this thing that caught fire and oh hey there's Reggie White's son and he thinks he's better than everybody else because he's Reggie White's son and, and let's let's not be friends with him because he thinks he's Reggie White's son I created this kind of idea of what new people would treat me as I had my guard way up and and I, it, to be completely honest, I think I've I've always had that guard up, which is weird because I had that guard up even in first grade. Like, what first grader has that guard up? But I had it up because there was no time in my life where my dad wasn't famous, and and it's and you look at some of the you know like like Steve Young for example, he had his kids. He has eight kids, I think. He had, he started having his kids when I was probably like 10 
Okay. Uh, Brett Favre, me and his daughter, uh, his oldest daughter, are around the same age. But Brett Favre wasn't Brett Favre until he was Brett Favre. And he wasn't Brett Favre until she was around eight. My dad was Reggie White my whole life. So I always saw that. And I was like, oh, shoot, people are going to think this. Because he was always Reggie White. It wasn't, oh, 10 years old. Oh, my dad got famous. Oh, okay, okay. Well, we'll we'll just keep doing what we're doing. No. It was, he had me before his prime, and then he was rookie of the year, and the Memphis Showboats, and I was born in 86, and he got drafted in 85 by the the Eagles, and just, I mean, it was, there was already a whole aura of, look at this guy. And it was just, I, and I'm, I'm trying to think, I don't know what other sports athlete in an era had their children and had gotten married when they were at their peak before they learned everything. He was 22 and he found it just like that because he worked hard for it. You see what I'm saying? Like it was a weird, interesting, unique position to put be put in. And I think I had built up this idea of how people would treat me. But in 11th and 12th grade, it really wasn't as crazy as I thought it was going to be. Thank God. And I know there was probably people in your life or people around your life that thought, oh, it's it's Reggie White's son. He's obviously going to be a football star or a basketball star following his <laughs> footsteps. And you touch on this in the book, and, and the title even says, with it being in his shadow, as in people might have had an idea for you in one sense that, oh, he's going to be a star athlete or he's going to do this and not let you do what you wanted to do but you do mention in the book that your father definitely allowed you to do that and there were major points in your life where you might approach him or have a conversation and he would have that answer of whatever you want to do that makes you happy will make me happy and I I just want to know if that maybe was a relief of sorts where there might be some outside pressures for you growing up as to what people might want you to do or who they think you might have to be. Whereas your father just wanted you to be yourself. Yeah. And it's interesting. I was in ninth grade and one of, one of my teachers, the first time I met my teacher, she, she said, uh, my, my cousin who owned the school had said, this is, this is Reggie's son. And immediately before the teacher asked me my name or anything, she goes, Oh, Reggie Jr. And I go, No, no, my name's Jeremy. And she goes, Okay, you know. Um, and then, you know, later on in life, people, uh, one of my history teachers, uh, senior year, I think this was in the book as well. Uh, my history teacher, first, the first question he asked me was, Why didn't you take AP history? I said, Because I didn't want to not have a life. <laughs> I took AG, which was the you know the, the honors course, not the AP for the college credit. I said because I want to have a life. And then the second question he asked me was, "Why don't you come out and play receiver for me next year?" And I said, I looked at him. I said, "Hey, I, I can't. It's my twelfth grade year." He says, "Why?" I said, "Listen, if it's my twelfth grade year and it's the first time I'm playing football, who do you think they're gunning for?" I was like, "I'm not doing that to myself." I was like, "There's no way, man." I said, I, you know, there was no football program in 10th grade. There was no p- football program in 9th grade. I wanted to do Pop Warner when I was 10, but I was 10 pounds over the limit for Pop Warner, so I couldn't do it. So I never had an opportunity to do it because we moved around so much. And then now you're telling me, hey, come around 12th grade, play some football. I know you got some hands. 
What I wanted to tell him was, no, I have small hands. First of all, I can't even, I'm not good at dribbling. How am I going to be able to good, be good at catching the ball? And, and, I, and I never felt pressure because my dad came to my recreational basketball games, the ones that were sponsored, you know, by the community and stuff. And he never pushed me to go varsity or anything like that. When I told him I did not want to be on the basketball team in 10th grade, I, I, was, I was scared to tell him. I said, you know, he, he said, don't you have basketball practice today? I said, Dad, I don't want to be on that team. Like, th- those are some terrible individuals. I don't want to be on that team. I don't want that pressure. I don't like it. And he goes, all right, if you don't like it, don't go back. And I was like, really? You know, my mom completely got it, but I was throwing them back. I was like, I'm telling you that I don't want to do this, and it's athletic. And literally, he had got done whistling the theme song to, like, Green Acres or uh, Matlock or something, something old. And he's just whistling it, and he's like, hey, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. I was like, oh, okay, well, we're not gonna, I'm not going to do it. And he's like, all right. And that was that was the end of that, and uh, and I think it really helped because there were people in my life that just it was one of the biggest questions they've always had. Even people I got close to, they were like, "Man, why didn't you ever play?" I said, "Well, first of all, I was moving around too much, and second of all, that wasn't what I was into. I just never was into that. I I, I had." felt like I was called in a different direction. My passion was in a different direction. And now that I'm almost 32, I, I can sit here and tell you, you're breaking news here. If my dad hadn't done sports, I guarantee you he would have been involved with something youth-related. Because that's just the kind of person he was. And that's, that's why I'm realizing I'm getting my gifts from, is him. Because he would have done something. I don't know if he would have done something as, as uh, young as kindergarten. But he would have absolutely done something with youth. That was his passion. He always says, if I didn't play in the NFL, I would have been an NBA star. And we laughed at him, but he probably could have been. But we, <laughs> our family laughed at him, like, really? But, yeah, it, he helped out a lot because he just wanted us to be happy. Um, I'll reiterate it, cause, but it was in the book, too. I told him I wanted to be a veterinarian. He said, well, okay, when you graduate college, I'll buy your first practice and you, you can own it. I said, Dad, I'll be 22. Like, I don't think anybody wants to work for a 22-year-old. Like, we're not doing that. And then he found out I wanted to write and be a journalist. And he's like, hey, let's start a magazine. We'll call it Sackman Magazine. I said, Dad, I think we're only going to have six months worth of content. Really? And he's like, no, no, we'll start We'll start a Sackman Magazine. That's what we're going to call it, Jeremy. We're going to do it. And I was like, Dad, really? And, and like, that, that's kind of my biggest regret when I think back of what could have been is he really, whatever it was I could have gotten into, he would have been 110%, even though I know that's not possible because 100%, I hate when people say 1,000%. That's not a thing. It's 100%. Uh, he would have been 100% behind it, and he and there just would have been some, like, I wish he could have seen what me and my sister are doing now like that. It could only be in his greatest imaginations uh, that we're going towards our passion. Well, he has the professional football thing, but I think you're the only person that could say you used to be able to whip Reggie White's ass in Madden. <laughs> I forgot to put that in there. We take that to the oh. bank. Nobody else can say that, right? <laughs> take it into the bank. Here's the, here's the great thing. So we we played Madden, and I was the Browns. And uh, it doesn't need any context. I was the Browns. The Browns have been the Browns since they've been the Browns, right? 
he was the Packers, and I had was beaten him forty-two to seven by halftime. He was like, "Forget this. We have we had a, a movie theater in our house, like a theater screen, the movie seats, and whatever." And I was like, "Let's lay downstairs in the movie room, right?" And I'm just tearing him apart. This was two thousand one, Madden two thousand one, Exhibit EA Sports, Cover Smash, and that whole thing, right? And uh, and and I was just killing him, and he was like, "Oh, I can't do this." Now, beforehand though, in '98. We're playing NFL Blitz and um, Stewart on the front cover. Cordell Stewart. And for some reason, now, I'm not calling foul. I'm just saying I think this was the – it probably wasn't the reason. It was the year my dad gave his Wisconsin legislature uh, speech, and they thought he was retiring, which I found out from my mom was uh, hogwash because he never told anybody he was retiring. The media had assumed he was retiring and ran the story that he was retiring. And our neighbors came up to us, who we're still neighbors with to this day, and said, hey, it's Reggie, you're retiring? And they were like, what? So I think the creators of Blitz thought he was retiring. They didn't put him in the game. Okay. Um, and this was the 98, 98 season. Uh, the year they ended up losing to T.O. in that catch with the 49ers. And I cried my eyes out. Uh, he actually could play blitz pretty well, but I still beat him. Um, couldn't handle Madden. His hands were too big. He couldn't get it together with the PlayStation 2, uh, PlayStation 2 controller. He couldn't get it together. Hands were too big. The one thing he loved was playing NFL Street. Oh, the first NFL Street because it was so easy to run. So he would pick the Packers, and he would play his Ahmad Green, and he would run all over me. And I swear... It was a fu- one of the funniest things he ever said was, he, I said, Dad, what if you were in this game? He goes, if I was in this game, I'd really love playing with myself. And I go, what? And he goes, oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, he's like, I really love, um, and he couldn't think of another way to say it. And I couldn't think of another way to say it. And I'm like 15, so I get the joke. And we're grown at that point, like not, you know, kids. And we were just laughing because I was like, you you want to play with this? <laughs> like, it's so funny. But, yeah, he was, you know, playing with Brett Favre, Ahmad Green, and, and that was the easiest game he could get behind. That was the best thing since Blitz that could have happened. Madden was way too technical for him. Way too technical. And you're talking about a man who memorized a playbook the size of a trumpet case on defense. Like, he knew his ins and outs of football, but he could not put it together when it came to video games. Absolutely not. Another big theme to the book was that your father was incredibly devout, especially Mm -hmm. later in life, and how that was also passed on to you growing up. And while fans may already know that he was a minister and preacher, and the book really goes into detail about how strong his faith was and the time he put into it from spending about eight hours every day studying Hebrew and reading the Bible and continuing to learn as much as he could up until, up until he passed away. And I'm sure you hold most of that foundation with you today. What influence did your father's beliefs have on you now from the times you went on retreats to the times that you spent with them to, I know the daily conversations you guys used to have just about faith, how that's been carried over with you now. So I think one of the best things he taught me inadvertently was um, growing up in school, I would always learn what I need to learn to get to get an A. Just to, just to say I passed it, I got it, we're moving on, okay? 
he he taught me a life skill that was basically it, it it's more common knowledge now I, I would say because you got a lot of people huffing and puffing on the internet that say life's always been like this. I always do my research before I talk. No, 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 you didn't. No, you didn't. You, you, you most of the time just speak before you do your research, but it's, it's now becoming trendy to say, well, I don't, I don't believe anything unless I've researched it. I don't believe anything. I only believe in logics and facts and all that stuff. Right. And it's it's kind of being a hashtag sort of thing, and that's that's a whole other conversation. But at the time, that wasn't that wasn't in the forefront, especially in Christianity, from what I saw. And and the only reason I feel comfortable speaking of this is because, like like it said in the book, I wasn't home for more than two weeks in the off season. We went to church after church. I've been to Texas, Ohio, Oregon. California, Nevada. Um, we went to Arizona. We went to Jersey. We've been through Connecticut. We've been Kentucky, Tennessee, Wisconsin, Minnesota. I mean, we have been, we went all over the country speaking in all different kinds of churches based on Christianity, but still even non-denominational, denominational, Pentecostal, Presbyterian. I mean, we went everywhere, okay? So when I speak so forthright about this, it's because, yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't taken a poll. I didn't do like a, uh, a whatever the, gosh, I took polling in college, but whatever the, you know, the, the best polls are and, and, and figuring out the stuff. And that's just your opinion. And it's anecdote. You know what? No, I've seen it. He went to a certain point with his spirituality where he basically says, I'm starting to learn this new stuff. And the new stuff I'm learning, I'm agitated because it's been in the book that the people I've trusted to tell me about this. That that sounds confusing. I'm going to say it a different way. I've been studying the Bible since I was 17. I've been an ordained minister since I was 17. And the people I've trusted to deliver me the contents of the Bible haven't told me the whole story. And when I went back to learn it and look at it for myself, I said, hey, did you ever know that this was in the Bible? And they came back up to me and said, yeah, we knew that. And hey, 15, 16, 17, 18, almost 20 years. You knew this was there? Yeah, I knew that was there. Did you know that it meant this in Hebrew? Did you know that this is what the original, you know, Forgetting semantics, whether you believe that God inspired the Bible, people wrote it, no matter, forget all that. You have two people who believe that the Bible's true. And there's one person who's telling the other person, did you know this was there? Did you understand what this meant? On a level playing field of we both believe in this. We are basing our life off of this. Did you know this was here? And he had many people come back to him that he trusted and said, yeah, we knew it was there, but we're not teaching that to our congregation because they're going to leave. And he felt so betrayed by leaders that I don't even know the name of. And, and if I knew their name, I'd put them on blast right now. But he said he had people literally he had a this is before DVDs got popular. He had a set of VHSs. Um, and he sent it to a pastor that he trusted. And he said, hey, this is what I'm learning. You've been asking me about what I'm learning. Here's what I'm learning. I said, he sent it to him. 
month goes by, two months goes by. Calls the pastor. Hey, did you check out those videos? Oh, I'm Reggie. I'm getting around to it. Okay, all right. Calls him back a month later. Hey, did you get around to those videos? Oh, you know, Reggie, I'm getting around to it. I ain't got to it yet. Okay. Calls him back a third time. Hey, did you get around those videos I sent you? He said, um, no, Reggie, I didn't. And my dad said, why? He already knew the answer. Reggie, I believe what's on those videos, again, based on what Christianity is and, and the basis of that we believe in the Bible being true, okay? Not somebody who's an atheist or not somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible or, you know, there's no, like, gray area here. You're talking about two people on the same playing field, right? Uh, level playing field. I said, why didn't you watch the videos? And the guy said, Reggie, because I believe if I watch those videos, but what you sent me, I would believe that what is in those videos are true. And if I taught my congregation that, I wouldn't have any more congregation. And so he he just kind of got disheartened. He got to a point um, towards the end of his life and uh, where he was just lonely because every day he learned something else that just set him apart from a common, not common person, a common held belief. Uh, you would always ask, hey, you remember when Paul said this? What, what are you? What were you taught it meant? I said, oh, I was taught it meant this. He goes, what if I told you it was this? And, and I'll never forget, he actually told me, he said, he came in, I was in my mom's office, I don't know what I was talking about. And he came in, he said, Jeremy, Sarah, what if, what if, what if, uh, what if Jesus had a kid? And we looked at him, we were like, okay. <laughs> it's fine, whatever. And he's like, I think Jesus might have had a kid. I was like, oh, oh, but like, we're like, okay, like, what are you telling us right now? He didn't finish it. And dag on it, I was like, that was one of the things. When he died, I was like, did you get that from the Da Vinci Code? I was going to say, that, that movie didn't come out until like 2006. He missed it. Yeah, I was like, now, because I was, I was pissed. I was pissed, John, because I was like, hold up. I wanted to curse some more. Hold on. Did you come to that conclusion? Based on the fact that you had heard about the Da Vinci Code or because you actually got to it in your studies. Because if you got to it in your studies, why in the heck did you not explain that to us right then? This is the path he was on. He was on just upending everything. Like, but, but two things that never changed with him. He never disbelieved that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And he never didn't believe in God. His ideas of what had been told to him and shaped the, the image of what God was over the past 20 years was changing, but his foundation was still the same. There was never a time in my life where I thought, you know what, I don't think my dad believes in God anymore. Or, you know what, I don't think my dad believes Jesus is the Messiah anymore. That was never a question. It was all the other little intricacies of it. And it, was, and it, it ended up getting to a point and I'll tell you this, and I've never told anybody this on radio, and I don't, I don't mind if you put it out there. I, I'll never forget. I went up to my mom one day. I go, hey, mom, um, because personally, in in the book, and it's in, in the book, I was I was saving my sexual life until marriage, and I remember going up to my mom, and I go, hey, mom. So according to everything in the Bible, uh, sex before marriage is a sin, and she goes, yeah, your dad talked to me about that. 
And I go, when did he talk to you about that? Because <laughs> you didn't mention that to me. You know, this is like I'm in my 20s at this point. And she goes, oh, no, no. Somebody had come up and talked to us about that. But we, you know, we just weren't sure how to approach you about that because we didn't know, you know, what you were going to do. And I was like, cool, I get it. You thought I was going to be like this sexual fiend. I understand it. But I'm happy to know that you guys had got to that point, too. You know, so that's how, that's how far out of the realm it was with the even with the Ten Commandments, it said you should not commit adultery. And it said, but but adultery has nothing to do with sex before marriage. And if you really read everything in the Bible, not to go on a rant about what's true and untrue, but it's just it's just an example. It says you should not commit adultery, but then when you hear about it in church, it's you should not have sex before marriage, which is not what it said, but it got interpreted that way. And so you started doing traditions of things. And then when you actually go back and read a text, you're translating it based on what you've been told before you actually read the text. And so I think that coupled with what he was learning in Hebrew and and then what he started to learn in Greek, because he only started to learn Greek so that he could learn Greek to translate it into Hebrew to say, this is not what they would have meant in Greek because they were speaking Hebrew and here's how I can prove it. He was all, I mean, he was, he was a uh, mad dog unchained to use a familiar phrase. Like that dude, you could not, I mean, you couldn't corner him for anything. He had a response for everything, but it was, that was, I think that was good for him too, because once he had realized he was done with the Panthers and he was done with football, I think that became his new, obsession is the wrong word because it sounds negative, but that became his new passion. And looking back on it, I'm like, I'm so happy he had that because there's a lot of football players who they get done and and they don't know what to do with their lives because that's all they've ever done since they were ten, and he so he dove into his spirituality and and that that was it. So again, all over the place, but I hope that answers your question. So it's interesting that the discussions that you mention in the book about Reggie White's religious beliefs and how much he studied also correlates a little bit into the relationship that you had with him as a father, especially as you got a little bit older, because. There would be things you might chat about after childhood, maybe in your teenage years, that you didn't always see eye to eye with. I know there was a, a section in the book, maybe on a little bit not as serious note, where he ends up taking all of your Pokemon cards and your complete collection away as something oh, that, that he believed in. And I, I'm sure oh, that, that, was, that you, was, haven't, ooh, you still haven't forgiven John, that. <laughs> John, that was... That was sick. Go ahead and finish your question. I, well, I don't. I don't want to get you worked up. I wasn't even sure if I should bring it up because I know. No, what that please, because that's a that's a that's a checkpoint. That's a checkpoint I, in the I life. Going to say of Mario Kart sixty four. I Shoot. know that's something that at that time period in your life, you're not going to forget something like that when you're a mm. fan of something and it just gets taken away. You will remember the date, the time, and how the weather was outside. But there were things oh, that you would maybe not see eye to eye with or disagree with as you got older. And, and that escalated a little bit in teenagers as it does seemingly with all teenagers. We all get right. to a stage in life where you want to sort of break away from your parents or push them away and be your own person and have your own ideals. And the relationship sometimes gets skewed a little bit and eventually everybody seemingly is able to come back or there's a way to come back and you and your father were got past that point and we're coming back to 
really strengthening your relationship from times where you might have disagreed on something for times where you might have held something from him things were moving in the right direction and unfortunately he passed away and it couldn't get to the height of what that could have possibly been but is it something that you look back on now sort of a relief that you guys were able to mend whatever was broken to get to the stage that you guys were at as father and son before he unfortunately passed away Yes. Yes. I'm happy that we could, we, we made it to where we were. And, and I, and I appreciate it daily because, um, as I, as I also mentioned in the book, my, my sister wasn't able to get there with him because she was going through the same thing I was going through with him just two years prior, uh, with, with her relationship. She was 16 at the time. She was going through her own little thing with him as he passed. So, uh, even, you know, it, it took a while for even her to kind of not forgive herself because she didn't do anything wrong, but just to come to grips with, yeah, that's where we were, but we we still loved each other. But it was harder because she didn't get the, the chance to do that. And I am happy that I got to that point because, um, and it was it was very short-lived, but I'm happy I could see it because it, it allowed me to, one, it, it let me see my father as I think that was the first time I kind of seen him as just a regular human being for the first time was my freshman year Elon. And what I mean by that is it wasn't somebody who I was going to call and have to say, Hey, I locked myself in my room because I didn't want to go to church. Hey, I got my name written on the board because I did something wrong. Hey, I got an 84, which is a C plus, not a B minus. And during college, uh, the first time I, I was, even before college, when I was like, hey, this, this guy, Dad, is pretty cool. I, I told him, I said, Dad, I'm, I'm really worried about going to Elon. I'm, I'm really worried it's going to be hard, like really tough, because this is a good school. And I'm, and I'm just, man. And he looked at me and he said, Jeremy, it's as hard as you're going to make it. And I was like, okay. I, I can go with that. Like that's something mom's supposed to say, but cool. Let's let's go with that. And and I remember keeping that. And I was like, oh, it's hard. And that freshman year, that global studies liberal arts course that all freshmen were retired, required to take, that was hell. I hated that class. But it was like, okay, this is hard. You're gonna make it. So, but just being able to call him and say, Dad, guess what my uh, my biblical. It was like Old Testament studies. I took an Old Testament studies class. Guess what my Old Testament studies class talked about? He talked about Satan not being Satan. Isn't this crazy? And my dad was like, yeah, they're teaching that up there. I was like, yeah, dad, check this out. And we we started talking. And it was just, it was the first time where usually, um, and I don't know if I mentioned this in the book, and if I did, it was very briefly. My dad would always call from training camp or from an away game. And he would always ask me the same question. In my whole life, he said, do you miss me? And I had, I would always respond honestly because he told me to always be honest. Don't ever tell a lie because he told me if you tell a lie and I find out you're at least going to get 10 licks with the belt. But if you tell the truth at most, you'll get two licks or none at all. So I took that literally. I was telling the truth with everything, even stuff that hurt people's feelings. I told Rick Flair's wife, she was ugly. That's a whole nother conversation. Remind me to bring oh that back my, up. I told goodness. Rick Flair's wife she was ugly. Okay. I was 11 years old. So my dad always asked me, he said, do you miss me on the phone? And it was never anything like sentimental. He was just like, hey, you miss me? And I go, no. 
I was always answer. I was like, no, I don't miss you. Like, we're, we're good. Like, I, I'm looking forward to you coming back, but I don't miss you. I'm good. I got my Super Nintendo. Mom's feeding me. Like, we're good. It was never anything personal. Like, I didn't want him to come back. I was just answering honestly as a kid, okay? And I remember for the first time in as a freshman, I, I called home, and, I, and I, my mom picked up the phone. She said, hey, Jeremy. And I said, hey. And she was like, what's going on? I said, actually, Mom, is Dad home? And she, and, and remember the first time I said that, she kind of went back a little bit. She was like, yeah, yeah, your dad's home. And I said, yeah, I, I want to speak to him. And and then we started talking. And I would always call and ask for him. And and that was never, I'd never been like that in my whole life. And it was never because I didn't love him. It was just I always had that relationship with my mom. And being able to have that relationship very briefly with him from June, July, August of twenty of 2004 till that he passed away was something I'll, ne- I'll never forget because I, I doubt, I don't know how many men get to have that with their father, let alone men who had a very strict father, let alone men who didn't have a father, um, you know, or men who were primarily mama's boys for whatever reason. So yeah, it was, it was, it's something I'll always treasure. Um, and I kind of do look at it. I'm like, dang, we were just getting it together. You had to go. But I was like, okay, at least we had that time. And that's good. Right. And I, I think if anyone needs clarification on that, they could also read or watch the transcript when you were the presenter at his Hall of Fame. And obviously your mother was giving the acceptance speech, but you were able to be the presenter there at the Hall of Fame induction gave a great speech for that she did as well of course and i'm sure that everyone that got to be there for it as they've said in interviews and such have said as much how great of a day it was for him to be remembered and there's been countless remembrances as well for the different teams he's played for and different things he's been part of and we joked briefly about it before coming on here that obviously since reggie white is your father you're you're made you can go to any nfl game you want to you can get into the Super Bowl. You can have all these different perks in the National Football League. I mean, I, I don't know why you're not at Radio Row right now. There might be a little misconception with that by people thinking that you might have a little bit easier than they do when it comes to uh, getting some National Football League recognition. Awesome. Glad you brought that up, John. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Let me tell you something. The NFL is only interested in you as long as you are interesting for them. And that is harsh, but it is a reality. And I, I don't know how Peyton Manning's family has it. Uh, they they might get tickets to Broncos and Colts game, and he might be revered. Cool, all well and good. Not everybody's Peyton Manning. Not everybody's a quarterback. But I guarantee you the Detroit Lions are not offering Barry Sanders two tickets to every game from here on out. As soon as you are done being something for the NFL, they are done with you. It's just point blank period. And if it's not the case, then maybe I need to tell my mother to get a new manager that is not existing. Cause we, there are people that still come up to me and they say, Hey, Jeremy, you still get free tickets to Panthers games. Right. And I was like, I don't know what you're smoking. I'd like it. And please make sure it's not, um, able to be detected by public schools because I still teach because I don't know what you're smoking. I don't get free tickets. 
oh, but Jeremy, your dad was a legend, right? Don't you get free tickets? Okay, again, I don't know what you're smoking. They don't give me free tickets. And even in Green Bay, even in Philadelphia, like we'd have to call somebody to call somebody to call somebody to figure out where to get mid-tier to nosebleed tickets. I took a buddy of mine to a Panthers game last year. And I think I floated out to my mom. I was like, hey, do you know anybody for this game that can get us tickets? She said, no. I ended up paying full price for the tickets and then some. I think we paid like $130 a piece to sit in the top, top, top nosebleeds. And you're talking about, and the only reason I say it like this is just for reference, just for the interview's sake. You're talking about Reggie White's son at a Panthers game sitting in the nosebleed section in the 500s cheering on a terrible Carolina versus Arizona game because they were both terrible last year. But I took my boss, uh, who I, I do interviews for a company I used to work for in Japan. He's Canadian. He'd never been to an American football game before. And I, I took, and, and, that, and that's what we did. We had fun. But there was no way. I wasn't about to get tickets. Even though I know Eugene Robinson, I doubt Eugene Robinson could have gotten me tickets for that game. Like, they, like I, I can't imagine who I'd have to call to get a Super Bowl ticket to the Eagles. I could call them and say, Reggie White's son, I want to get tickets to the Eagles Patriots Super Bowl. Really? You want to get tickets to the Eagles Patriots Super Bowl? Get on the list. I even found out not six months ago, every player, no matter how renowned they are, they only get a set amount of tickets for the Super Bowl. So to put this in perspective, when my dad and Brett Favre were at Super Bowl 31 against the Patriots, for the Packers, right? First time Packers have been back since Super Bowl II. The NFL only designated them certain, like a certain amount of tickets. I don't think it was any more than four a piece. Like, and that was for all the players. It didn't matter if you were Brett Favre, Reggie White, Leroy Butler, George Koontz, Sean Jones, Gilbert Brown, uh, effing Drew Bledsoe. Um, his offensive lineman that got shook up by my dad, poor guy, but whatever. Like, no, there were only a set, set amount of tickets, and that was it. All the rest, you had to buy. We had, like, 17 members of our family in the same section. I have no idea how much that cost my dad. But it cost him a pretty penny because Super Bowl tickets were at least 250 to $300 regular market price at the time. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And then to make matters worse, and please, please let this get on air. The Hall of Fame, which is not really designated by the NFL, but it's still the NFL Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame, when we got, when my dad got inducted, we get a picture frame with his picture inside of it, and we got a patch that would have gone on his jacket. They did not make a jacket for us, for our family, because he wasn't alive. They did the same thing with um, Junior Seau. And then last year with the quarterback, Kenny Stable. They did the same thing with him. They made a plaque or a picture frame with a picture, and they probably gave him a patch. And that was it. And I am not trying to sound ungrateful. But this is in itself not an offensible put in jail crime. This is a crime what happened next. 2006. My mom tells me, Jeremy, we're trying to get your dad's ring back. I said, what do you mean? The Super Bowl ring? And I thought we had that like locked up in a bank. Not Super Bowl ring. His NFC Championship ring? Not his NFC Championship ring. Mom, what ring are you talking about? 
We got two rings. That's, that's where it's at. His wedding ring? No, not his wedding ring. He's got a Hall of Fame ring. I said, Mom, how do you get a Hall of Fame ring if they didn't give us a jacket? She said, I talked to the lawyer. The Hall of Fame made a ring. They did the same thing with Walter Payton. They made a ring, but they will not give it to the family. But they made a ring. Wait, hold on. Hold, what? They made a ring, but they're not giving it to the families. Why did they make a ring? I don't know, Jeremy. That's the policy. But they made a ring, and it's in a vault in the Hall of Fame. Okay, let me get this straight. They, they made a ring for my father for being in the Hall of Fame. But they give the family no access to the ring because my father passed away. Why would you make the ring in the first place? Are you kidding? So Walter Payton's son went through the whole thing, the, the same thing. He had apparently tried to, you know, sue the Hall of Fame to get his dad's ring and to no avail. So Walter Payton's ring, as far as I know, uh, my dad's ring, as far as I know, uh, and uh, I guess people who came after him who have passed away, there are rings made for these men that are not accessible to their even immediate family. I'm not talking about extended. I'm talking about wife and kids. Wife, <laughs> even. Not available. They are in a vault somewhere in Canton, and they are not available to the family. And I'm just like, you know what? There's a lot of things I get pissed off at the NFL about. A lot of things, and I'll brush it off. That, in my lifetime, other than when they weren't going to let Junior Sale's daughter speak, that was the only time when I heard Junior Sale's daughter wasn't going to speak at the Hall of Fame, I was all over every single media person I knew. I, I tweeted at Andrea Kramer. I said, get me on the record now. This is ridiculous. And if this doesn't get solved, you need me on the record now because I'm about to go off. And then two days later, they let her speak. Only two things I really feel passionate about in football. Why can't I have my father's ring? And before they let Junior Seau's daughter speak, why couldn't she speak? And even last year with Kenny Stabler, the thing is now to not let the family speak? Really? Even though you inducted him? Now, my dad would have got first ballot Hall of Fame regardless. I know that for a fact. But Kenny Stabler, you inducted him because he passed away when everybody knows he should have been inducted before he passed away. And then you're going to slap his family in the face by saying none of them can speak. Get out of here. I just, I couldn't with that last year when that happened or two years ago, I'm sorry, when Brett got inducted, I was like, I can't, I can't with that. That's, this is a ridiculous notion only serves one person or one entity. And that's the NFL hall of fame. You're spitting all over this family. That's ridiculous. So that's like, that, that. out of everything football that's happened in my life, those are probably the only two things where I'm really like vehemently like, really? This is how you're going to treat people? So we can close with a couple of football-related questions, more so your fandom than the league itself or the Hall of Fame. Let's go. Why don't you let people know who you're a fan of? Your father, of course, played for the Eagles, the Packers, and the Panthers. However, that is not the case for the jersey that you might don on a Sunday. Not at all. Not at all. I am a diehard since I was four years old. Premised when I was six months old, somebody put me in this shirt just to make my dad have a conniption, and it ended up becoming true. I am one of the most diehard Dallas Cowboy fans you are ever going to meet. 
Emmett Smith was my favorite player growing up, and he got replaced by Tony. That's my quarterback, Romo. Uh, and I was cheering for T.O. when he was here. Glad he's gone. Uh, but I am, every single year, I root for the Cowboys like nothing else. My wife doesn't understand football. She's from Japan, but she knows I love the Cowboys. And she'll walk into the room after the Cowboys had won or lost, and she knows exactly how to approach me. If they lost and she saw it, she goes, oh, did they lose? I said, yeah. And she doesn't bug me the whole rest of the day. She lets me get over it. The worst, one of the worst times in my life, and I'm, I'm telling you this, since my father has passed, and I, I, I challenge all of your listeners to check this out, because I don't believe in curses necessarily but since my father has passed the dallas cowboys have lost in the most unprecedented heartbreaking manners every single season every single season to the point where i'm telling you if there's there's listeners that you have they're atheists I need you to go back and watch the Cowboys. It will make you a believer in God. Because I swear, the day my father passed away, God probably looked at him and goes, welcome home. And he goes, don't welcome me home. I don't want my son to be happy being a Cowboys fan ever again. I need you to do something for me. And God was like, what you need me to do? And my dad was like, I need you to give my son hope every year. And then I just want to snatch it from him out from under him in the worst way possible. Can you do that? And God's sitting back like, Reggie, seriously? That's what you want to do to your own blood? And he goes, yeah, because that dude used to pray that the Cowboys would win. He used to ask for the Cowboys to win when I was playing against them. How wrong is that? That's what happened. That's what I did. So I believe I'm being cursed. And I can take you through year by year. Listeners, go through every single year. And it all started with Bob and Snap with Tony Romo. All started with that year. You can go through every year. The Cowboys have either lost their last game to the Eagles to not make the playoffs, to the Packers in the playoffs, or interception after interception after. It just it, it, it goes on. And even we had the chance to be the first team to go to the Super Bowl in our home state. And we lose. After a, after going one and seven, getting dismantled by who? The Green Bay Packers. Wade Phillips gets fired in the middle. And then guess who goes to the Super Bowl that year? The Green Bay Packers. Guess where they win the Super Bowl? In Dallas. What? Are you kidding me? And it's every single year. And if you don't believe me, this year is the epitome of what happened. Last year, we got beat by the Packers. We were 13 and three, supposed to win. This year, who goes to the Super Bowl? The Philadelphia Eagles, after having a second-string quarterback, and we were supposed to be it. I'm telling you, every year, and I'm and I and just he won't give me a break. He will not give me a break. I, I literally, I keep asking, when's the curse going to be over? Because it's been 13 years. Can the curse be over? And that's why I'm really hoping Philly, Philly wins the Super Bowl. Because maybe after Philly wins the Super Bowl, he'll just say, you know what, Philly won the Super Bowl. We're good. Let my son be happy. No, no. Until I see it, I'm not going to believe it. And I'm telling you, go back and look at all the last games. It comes down to the last plays. Tony Romo threw a touchdown. Yay, we won. No, somebody held. You lost. Tough luck. Every year. 
I'm, I'm affecting a whole city. I'm, I'm telling you, I, I wish everybody knew it. I wish all the Dallas Cowboy fans knew that all their misery over the last 13 years was because I, the son of Reggie White, who played for the Eagles and the Packers, decided to be a Cowboy. So I'm, I'm telling you, man, go back and look at those last games. I'm just telling you, they are brutal. They are brutal. Year after year, it's just, oh, we have hope. No, you don't. No, you don't. Here comes Green Bay. Here comes Philly. Here comes you guys choking. Hey, hey, hey. The year Tony Romo won a uh, playoff game, right? Goes to the next round. Guess who he loses to? Brett Favre <laughs> and the Vikings. I, I, I mean, I can't make this stuff up. He, he lost to Brett Favre. And it, and it, and it, what? He lost to Brett Favre? Wins against the Lions. Who's he lose to? Des Bryant and the catch. Okay. All right. Okay. We're good. Uh, what are you playing for? You're playing for the NFC East title. Who do you lose for? Two out of the three. You lose to the Philadelphia Eagles. It, okay. All right. What was that? What was that year where we just sucked? When did when did we realize we sucked? It's because when the when the Green Bay Packers beat the brakes off us. Oh, and then Wade Phillips got fired. Okay, and Wade Phillips coached my dad in the, it. Just the the coaching tree. It's just there's there's just so much that goes into it. Andy Reid could have been our coach and we would have been better. I mean, what what's his name? Uh, who's who's the coach for the Raiders now? Um. John Gruden, John Gruden could have been our coach and we would have been better. But they played for all these people. And it's just, oh, oh no, we're just going to, I'm going to make you make my son's life miserable. I'm just going to, I'm going to let you guys have everything. Like the Eagles go to the NFC Championship five times under Andy Reid. John Gruden wins the Super Bowl. Like just, just stuff after stuff after stuff. It's like, you know what? I don't even know why I care so much anymore. Like last year was so brutal because of Ezekiel Elliott. Oh, you're just getting into we're, we're getting into ripping the heart out now. Especially, you know what, John? And the funny thing is, and I won't keep you on longer. The funny thing is, and this is a story I haven't told many people. So last year, when the Cowboys were playing the Packers, right in the NFC divisional round, I was like, you know what? The, the Cowboys should beat them. They really should. They should beat him, or it should be close. It shouldn't be a blowout. When it was a blowout early, right, I'm like, oh, my God, this is happening again. Just let it end now. Please just let it end now. But no, my father had to let the Cowboys come all the way back, all the way back. When they kicked that field goal and that field goal went wide left and then managed to get it right in the upright after Aaron Rodgers, a.k.a. Jesus, throws that spectacular pass, I'm like, this is not happening in my life, right? So I soak down in the corner of my man cave. My wife comes in and she goes, I heard they lost. I said, yeah. She said, I won't bother you. Next day was Martin Luther King Day. Didn't talk to anybody, right? I was staying at home from school. My mother calls me an hour after the game and says, hey, I saw your wife at Walgreens. I said, yeah. She said, hey, I saw some Packers fans. They were really happy. I said, yeah. She said, who did the Cowboys play? I said, mom. I almost cursed at her. Oh, no. I almost cursed at my mother. I said, mom? What? And she goes, I heard the Packers won. How did the Cowboys do? 
And I knew she wasn't throwing shade. That's why I said, Mom, you know. And she goes, no, what? You oh, they played the Cowboys, Jeremy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> because she went to the store and the Packers fans were so happy here in North Carolina. And she did. She was so out of touch with football. She's like, I heard the Packers won. How the Cowboys do? I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Motherfucker. I was so ready to curse. I was like, dude, don't do this to me. She's like, Jeremy, I'm so sorry. Then she texted me later. Oh, no, she, 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 that night, she said, um, get an Uber. I said, what? She said, if you drink, just get an Uber, okay? I love you. And she hung up. <laughs> she was like, if you go out, just get it. She was like, she knew I was about to drown myself in misery. She goes, just get an Uber, be safe. And, and just, I just want to know you're safe. So get an Uber. <laughs> so anyway, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous, man. It's ridiculous. So yes, but I am a diehard Cowboys fan. And my favorite cowboy ever is Tony Romo. And I'm going to tell you, and I've never told anybody this on a radio program. I've said it on Facebook before. Tony Romo will be a Hall of Famer. You watch it. Tony Romo will get inducted into the Hall of Fame. I, I am making that case on January 30th, 2018. Tony Romo will be a Hall of Famer. He's not going to be first ballot. Probably won't be second ballot. Tony Romo will be a Hall of Famer. Absolutely. That is the end of my stories. I've kept you for much longer than you've anticipated. But oh, anyway. I've, I've enjoyed right. every minute. And you've already alluded to this answer. We know that Reggie White got his first Super Bowl ring against the Patriots with the Green Bay Packers. And we also know that your dad played for the Eagles. Both teams will be in Super Bowl 52, and you have already picked your allegiances. We are going with the birds. Yes, going with the birds. Um, I want it to happen. I want it to happen, one, so he will lift the curse off of me. I doubt that's what it'll do. But really, I want it to happen for Philly fans because Philadelphia, as much flack as they get for booing Santa Claus and throwing batteries at people and and saying F you to the Minnesota fans and all sorts of stuff. The, the, the Philly fans, the Philly faithful, they deserve they deserve a Super Bowl. They really do. And um, I'm not an Eagles fan, but I hope to God they win. I really hope to God they win. And I hope my dad pulls some sort of miracle out of his hat to, to really make sure that this happens because it didn't happen the first time. I it's going to be a close game. It's going to be a closer game than people realize. Philly's defense, um, has surprised me this year, um, and I knew it when they laid that whooping on the Cowboys the first time. But their defense was legit. Carson Wentz has been has just been really, really good for the Eagles, and you know he almost got drafted by the Cowboys, which is another slight to my life because the Cowboys would have drafted him number four overall had the Eagles not jumped over. And then you know we're like, oh, we got Dak, and then last year we're like, oh, Carson Wentz. So, but but apparently Carson Wentz is really big in the community. He's really spiritual. He has his fundraisers and he he does a lot. And he's a believer in God and stuff. So I'm I'm hoping that the Eagles win. And I think they they're not going to blow the Patriots out. Nobody blows the Patriots out. But it's not going to be easy. And I really believe that um, the guy they drafted uh, almost. And I'm not going to say to take the place of my dad, but the, the, the similarities are there. There's a guy um, who broke the Tennessee sack record. 
Derek Barnett, when the Eagles jumped up to number 14 to get him last year, uh, everybody said, oh, the Eagles are drafting Derek Barnett, who broke Reggie White's sack record at Tennessee. First of all, he broke Reggie White's sack record in the bowl games. They didn't count bowl games when my dad was playing. Neither here nor there. But I thought, oh, my goodness, what a, what a, uh, what, that's a pressure cooker. You're, you're, you're drafting this guy, comparing him to my dad, and then saying, come on in on this defense, and we jumped up to get you. I, I couldn't have been that dude. But apparently, uh, away from the numbers, Derek Barnett has been fantastic on every other level of that Eagles defense. The Eagles defense is going to bring something to that Patriots offense, and they are going to beat the Patriots 27-24. to That's my call. They're, go- they're going to win. And it's going to be very close, and I really look forward to it. And um, and I won't I won't say I'll celebrate like I would if the Cowboys won, but man, I'm going to be so happy for that city if they can pull this out. So there's my prediction. So to close, I have to give you a plug not only for the book in his shadow, growing up with Reggie White, which any listeners can find on Amazon, as I did. You also we'll just completed a children's book, now in ebook form, and that will be in book form shortly. I will give you the floor to just briefly plug your new book, Estelle and Gustav. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Oh, you did. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so happy you said Gustav, because some people are like, Gustav? I was like, no, it's Gustav, right? Yeah, uh, it's a kid's book. It's been in the works since uh, 2008 when I was at the daycare. Uh, teaching the daycare before I left for Japan in 2009. Uh, I was teaching the three to five year old class. And um, the kids said, you know, Mr. White, tell us a story. And Estelle, the singer from Britain, was popular at that time. And I said, okay, this is a story of Estelle. And um, and I just, I don't know where Gustav came from. And I was like, Gustav. And they, they thought it was hilarious. And I just started telling the story. And it got to a point where the parents started showing up early to pick up their kids because they wanted to hear how the story ended because i was just i was doing it as a time waster for the last 15 20 minutes and i would just you know get as extravagant as i could and somebody uh, one of my parents said you know you you need to make this into a book and i go i'm thinking you know i just got done writing the book i don't know if i want to write another book you need to make this into a book so it's fun I, i i love um the way Dr. Seuss rhymes. I love rhyming books. I've, I've always written poetry. Um, so if you're a fan of, of, of books that rhyme and books that are just silly, um, and it actually does have a nice little twist at the end uh, that I, I wasn't expecting, but it came to me while I was writing. Um, and my artist, I got to give a shout out to a guy by the name of Ryan McConnell. He did all the, the artwork for me. Um, and he actually convinced me because when I originally when I wrote this kid's book, it was 1,500 words. And he looked at me and he goes, Jeremy, are you writing this for kids? I said, yeah. He said, uh, let me tell the story with my pictures. I need you to bring this down some. You're writing too much. I'm like, okay, that's all I know. But it, it's a fun book. It's uh, it's $8 on the Kindle store. Um, fun fun book to read uh, with your child and, and, and uh, really silly um has a nice like i said has magic and talking animals and the dinosaur and all sorts of stuff and the second one's going to be coming hopefully in the next year i've already got that written out and uh the print version will be coming soon once we get the format set in amazon so that is the and gustav and i appreciate you letting me shout it out today 
Not a problem. And it was my pleasure to hear your real life stories as well from growing up in the shadow of Reggie White, out of the shadow of Reggie White as you grew older and the plentitude of stories that you were kind enough to offer tonight for the listeners to hear from his days and your days as well now. And I have another half page of things that I have left to ask you. So I guess you'll just have to drop by another time to tell some more stories. But I do appreciate you opening the door a little bit for people who might be fans of Reggie White and and got to know him a little bit more than we already do and people that got to know you hopefully a lot more than they already did just from what you have written down and what the stories you're told i really appreciate it and enjoyed it immensely thanks for having me on man it's been it's been uh great thanks again to mr white for coming on the show We'll now jump into a special Super Bowl edition of The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Donnie is a professional handicapper who knows a thing or two about the lines of the sports world and will be joining the bridge for a weekly segment to help us get on the right side of those lines. He'll offer up some of his best bets to correspond with the bridge fade of the week, where listeners are urged to completely go in the opposite direction of what the show picks, which we will do now for the upcoming weekend with the lines set as of the recording of this show. I don't even need to see the lines. Lay the points. Give me the New England Patriots. Touchdown, Tom. Bill Belichick, Robert Kraft, Dave Portnoy, even a perhaps still concussed Gronk to win their sixth Super Bowl over the Philadelphia Eagles in Minnesota. Now to someone who actually knows what he's doing, you can find Donnie at DonnieRightside.com and at SportsBookReview.com and also follow him on Twitter. He's at RightSideVP. And remember, this segment is for entertainment purposes only. Without further ado, the special Super Bowl edition of The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Is anybody got a dime? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Hey, Somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes. Uh, hey, everybody. Donnie Wrightside here from sportsbookreview.com and donniewrightside.com. Looking to end the football season on a high note. We're going to have some prop bets that are going to be in action and also give a Super Bowl prediction here on the Bridge Podcast. Welcome to the Toll Booth Edition here. And the goal again, folks, let's win some money. Hey, it's the end of football season. Put a little bit in your pocket, maybe enough to go on vacation with. We'll take some long shots here with some of these prop bets that are always a lot of fun. It's nice just to sit down with family and friends, whether or not you're even a Philadelphia Eagles fan or a New England Patriots fan. It's a nice time to eat. You have a good food spread typically there, you know, beverage of your choice. Enjoy the commercials. But, hey, why not? Let's win some money as well. Let's go over a couple prop bets that I like here for the game, all pulled from betonline.ag. First one we'll go with is neutral zone infraction being the first penalty of the game. That's going to pay 10 to 1 odds. reason why I like this one is typically in playoff play, Super Bowl play, they're not so much going to call the tacky maybe uh, pass interference call or late hit on the quarterback or a holding call that's very marginal there. They tend to let them play in these type of situations. So with a good quarterback a la Tom Brady, who's great with the hard count and also a Philadelphia Eagles defense where the front four is going to want to pressure him, which would be the key to this ball game. Maybe somebody gets a little bit, you know, hasty there in the neutral zone, a Vinnie Curry, a uh, Brandon Graham or a Chris 
Chris Long jumps off sides, Fletcher Cox. You could certainly see that happening, and it's a long shot. It's only the first penalty, and we're going to see if we can grab that at 10-1 to 1 as a neutral zone infraction. First half receiving yards by Nelson Aguilar, over 20 and a half. Doesn't seem to be too much. We're going to avoid going on the outside with Torrey Smith and Alshon Jeffrey, who are going to be matched up against some pretty good cornerbacks. So we'll pick on that third corner, and again, you only need 20 and a half yards. It's on turf, quick slant pass. He can easily get 10 to 15 yards on that. Then might need another maybe one or two catches after that, but not a lot of yards there for 20 and a half. We'll lean on that. First rushing attempt by Corey Clement of the Philadelphia Eagles to go over three and a half yards. That sits at plus 120. Corey, if you haven't watched a lot of Eagle football there, Corey Clement's a guy that's going to come in on third down, so maybe he gets a draw play. You know, he's usually the running back in the game when the Eagles are not in a running formation, so maybe by surprise to be able to rip off maybe a five, six yard run on his first attempt, but I think there's some pretty good value in getting the plus 120 with over three and a half yards. Total points in this football game, folks. If you always like that Vegas conspiracy out there, the total currently sits right now at 48. If the game lands on 46, 47, 48, 49, or 50, that's going to pay five and a half to one. So if you laid $100 down, you would win $550 back, and you're going to get that point spread right there. So we always say, like, hey, man, Vegas is always right on it. I can't believe they called it again within a couple points. That's your goal there, because that's going to pay handsomely at five and a half to one. The Patriots' longest completion of the day, over 37 and a half yards, folks. We're going to go under the 37 and a half at minus 115. Patriots going to want to look to get the ball out quickly versus that Philadelphia front seven there and keep the ball moving. They're not really a big play, deep threat type of team. So we'll take the under 37 and a half. And also, let's have a little bit of fun with this one. Pink's going to sing the national anthem out there. I have it as she starts with the microphone on the stand at minus 145. It is juice there, but a little bit more classy to have it on the stand as opposed to holding it in your hand. We all remember the great Whitney Houston one from back in the 90s when the war was going on. Fantastic, you know. Where was the microphone? Sitting right in the slot as well, not holding the mic. So we'll go pink starts on the stand which means, obviously, the microphone will be on the stand and not in her hand. Also, I like Tide at the half. We see the Patriots pay a lot of close Super Bowls out there, folks. We'll take Tide at the half at plus 800. So, again, if you lay $100 down, that pays off 800, 10, 10, 14, 14, 17, 17, uh, 7, 7. Any one of those combinations there, as long as you're tied at the half, that pays off handsomely at 8 to 1. And also, another one here will leave off either team to win the game by 3, 7, 10 or 14 points, that pays plus 170. And oh no, hey, if you're down 10 points, somebody's going to kick the field goal, score the touchdown. If you're, you know, if the game's 27 to 20 at some point, it ends the game, you're going to win that as well. So a couple common numbers there to lean on. And again, you're not, you're getting plus 100 or higher at plus 170. I think that's pretty good. And also the last one, a little bit juicy here for us, folks. Last offensive play to be a quarterback rush. Doesn't mean that the quarterback has to run the ball up the middle and slide down after six yards. We know what that means, folks. You know, a nice defensive stand. You take control, no timeouts, minute 20 on the clock, quarterback takes two or three knees, that one will cash in at minus 155, so a couple fun wagers to have there, also for looking at the game itself, folks, it's a big game environment, Two enough, the Eagles haven't been in this big of a game, obviously since last time playing the New England Patriots in 2000, excuse me, that's the 2004 season, but 2005 Super Bowl technically. Nobody's still around from that football game there for the Philadelphia Eagles. But again, you're looking at this game. New England Patriots have been there, done that. I'm looking at a little bit of nerves from the Philadelphia Eagles. And why would I bring that up there? Not that I think that they don't, can't win the football game or cover the football game. I'm actually going to lean on the total going under 48. I think in the Super Bowl here, and we've seen the New England Patriots, you know, field teams out in the first half and second half. I think both of these teams are going to look to keep the ball, keep the 
chains moving and keep the clock running. I think the Philadelphia Eagles have an advantage on the offensive line. They're going to win these Jay Ajay, LeGarrette Blunt, Corey Clement in the situations just to keep the lines moving. And since Carson Wentz went down, I mean, we can't deny it when we take a look. You know, beating the Oakland Raiders 19-10, losing even with second stringers to the Dallas Cowboys 6 to nothing, Atlanta 15-10, 38-7 with Minnesota. All of those games stayed under the posted total of 48. Do I think the New England Patriots can score some points? Yes, but the Philadelphia Eagles played very, very good defense. Both of these teams will be scouted correctly here, both from Bill Belichick's standpoint on the defensive side with Matt Patricia, and also the Philadelphia Eagles with Jim Schwartz as having a fantastic year on defense. 48's a lot of points in the NFL, folks. It's a big game. There's going to be a lot of timeouts, maybe not a lot of emotional you know, swings that are going to take place during the game and momentum swings. Let's lean on under 48 and a half in this football game currently at sportsbook.ag. We'll go with that along with those props that we give out. Hopefully, we can win you a lot of money. We'll see if we continue this into college basketball season. Hopefully, we'll be able to reappear each and every week to hand out winners. But good luck in the Super Bowl, whatever way you go, folks. It's been a great year this year on the Bridge Podcast with the Tollbooth Edition for the football. And I'm Donnie Wrightside. Check me out at DonnieWrightside.com and SportsBookReview.com, folks. Hope you win a lot of money on the Super Bowl. Left side! We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts. For the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it and holds the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so. Along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down The Greatest Showman, which Rotten Tomatoes describes as Inspired by the imagination of P.T. Barnum, The Greatest Showman is an original musical that celebrates the birth of show business and tells of a visionary who rose from nothing to create a spectacle that became a worldwide sensation. Let's go to the circus. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. The movie musical is far from my favorite genre, but recent projects have pushed the platform into favor with me. As much as it was overplayed, 2013's Frozen is a solid film with great music. I feel the same way about 2016's Moana. Even Dwayne The Rock Johnson nails his song. But these are Disney animated films, and the studio has churned out these successful movies for years. What I rarely have an interest in is the live-action movie musical. I've had the privilege to see a few musicals on Broadway, including The Music Man, Spamalot, and Beauty and the Beast, which I greatly enjoyed. But as far as adapting a Broadway musical and putting it on the big screen, or making an original musical for the big screen, I just don't really have an interest. 
In 2014, Damien Chazelle put his name on the map as the writer and director of Whiplash, which received Oscar attention and an Oscar win for Best Supporting Actor J.K. Simmons. In 2016, a musical had huge Oscar buzz before it had a wide release, and that was Chazelle's La La Land. I didn't want to see the movie. I loved Whiplash, but Chazelle trying a musical now? It's just not the kind of movie I'm interested in. But the buzz made La La Land impossible not to see. And boy, was I happy to see it. It had me hooked from the incredible opening number. I'm not going to review La La Land, but I will tell you that I fell on the side of the people who adored this film. Rightfully so, as La La Land earned 14 Academy Award nominations, tied for the most all-time at the Oscars, and won Best Picture. Well, at least for a couple minutes. This year, I saw the trailers for The Greatest Showman. One of the main cells was featuring the Academy Award-winning lyricists of La La Land. But I thought The Greatest Showman would be more of a return to traditional musicals, whereas La La Land more so transcended and did something different, which made it so great. So again, I had no interest. And then a complaint of the film came out against his portrayal of real-life character P.T. Barnum, played by Hugh Jackman. While I haven't done the research, many people have come out and said Barnum was a terrible person who exploited others for personal gain. That was the negative which pushed me further away from seeing the film. The Greatest Showman opened to about $9 million, but gained legs as people seemed to really love the film and go back to see it. My mom even loved it and recommended I see it. The movie is now a box office hit that people are still seeing and talking about. It's been one of the most fascinating stories of the 2017 movie season. But how was the movie? Let's go to the tape. The opening number with the song The Greatest Show is the perfect start to the film, and the audience quickly finds out the music is going to be a lot of fun and catchy. That's where the movie truly shines. The Greatest Showman's soundtrack was number one on Billboard's top albums at one point. I'm not a music expert, but the songs seem to use a blend of the sounds you hear in today's music without losing the feel of a musical number. My favorite songs besides The Greatest Show are Come Alive, A Million Dreams, and Lauren Allred's Never Enough. It's a great soundtrack. I would definitely recommend it. I've listened to it many times and immediately after I got out of the movie theater. This Is Me is nominated for the Oscar for Best Original Song. I don't think it's the best song in the movie, but again, not a music expert. All the big names in the film, including Hugh Jackman, Michelle Williams, Zac Efron, Zendaya, are very good, but a few other singing performances impress even more. Kiala Settle really stands out. She is the driving force behind This Is Me. The other standout singing performance came from Lauren Allred. She sang Never Enough for the character Jenny Lind, played by Rebecca Ferguson. Now, I love Ferguson, but I don't understand why Allred couldn't play the character. That confused me. And in the theater, I was thinking, there's no way Ferguson is singing this song. It wasn't because the ADR was off. It was actually pretty spot on. It looked like Ferguson was singing. So credit to her, credit to the editing, and especially credit to Allred, who killed it. Never Enough is the song that should have been nominated for the Oscar. I almost forgot the choreography, which is excellent. I really enjoyed the dancing during the musical numbers, especially a scene between Jackman and Efron in a bar. They are impressive, and as a bonus, the bartender is dancing in the background, which I'll definitely look at closer in my next watch. So everything that deals with the music, the dancing, and the performances in general is great. A lot of fun, but you'll notice I haven't mentioned the plot yet. The story's fine, but it doesn't really spend enough time in certain areas. Efron has a relationship with one of the performers of Barnum's Circus, played by Zendaya. 
there is no development between the two except for a musical number. It's very rushed and very forced just to hit a plot point. And that's where the movie gets bogged down. The Greatest Showman is just trying to hit plot points so he could check the box instead of developing the plot points. And maybe that's why some people are up in arms about the misrepresentation of Barnum. I don't want to accuse the filmmakers of not caring, but they seem to have a singular focus, to tell a fun story with one message. And the way they thought they could get there was Barnum, when they could have just made up somebody. He could have just been named Joe Barice, and that eliminates the uproar that is somewhat dissipated at this point. As far as the misrepresentation of Barnum, I brought it up because it was the negative that came from audiences. But I don't care. Because The Greatest Showman's message is more important than the man himself. It tells us the ability to bring people happiness is the most important thing. And a great artistic performance does not have to be all hoity-toity and pristine and proper. Movies nominated for Oscars aren't the only good movies. Comedies, comic book movies, and horror movies are often not represented at the Academy Awards. That doesn't mean they're bad and shouldn't be enjoyed. Art is subjective, and it's meant to give people happiness. That's why it's beautiful. That's why we love it. And that art can come from any kind of person from any class. To quote the imitation game, sometimes it's the very people who no one imagines anything of who do the things no one can imagine. That's the message. There are many different kinds of art coming from many races of people, and they all have their own beauty. If they decided to use Barnum to tell that important and powerful message, so be it. The bottom line, The Greatest Showman is a blast with incredibly entertaining music, performances, and set pieces. The plot is flawed and the portrayal of Barnum is unfortunate, leaving the greater and important message the movie is trying to tell probably fall short with most audiences. Ultimately, this is an extremely entertaining and fun film people will continue to revisit over and over again. I'll compare The Greatest Showman to the NBA All-Star Game. Much like The Greatest Showman, the All-Star Game tries to sell substance every year, but the fans are just there for the ridiculously entertaining dunks and plays from a bunch of players just having fun. Sexy. Check! Good. Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, it's episode 100. We'll find a way to celebrate and pay homage to the last 100 shows and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.